All right. Well, listeners, welcome back to Heartland History. I am your host, Camden Bird, and I'm an assistant professor at Eastern Illinois University. Uh, I have some big news uh, for this episode of the podcast, and that is I am introducing a new co-host to the podcast. Um, We got a lot of complaints that I was too much of one voice. uh, And um, no, no, I'm very excited to introduce uh, a good friend and colleague, Dr. Ramya Swayam Prakash. Uh, Ramya, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Um, yeah, I was particularly bored with just you talking, Camden. So <laughs> I was just like, this needs to change. I, I'm um, sure other people thought that and you were the only person to tell me it, uh, you know, to my face. So I appreciate that. Um, Ramya, maybe uh, you could tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your interests and in getting involved with uh, this podcast. Yeah, um, to be honest, I... So I moved to Michigan about eight years ago. Um, and a part of the last eight years has been trying to figure if I fit in here. Um, so I thought, what better way to try and fit in but to be involved with a podcast about the Midwest? Um, because I'm still trying to figure what the Midwest is. Um, I supposedly have a PhD uh, in a part <laughs> of the Midwest. Um, so I am uh, trained as an environmental historian. Uh, I just finished my PhD. Um, where I wrote on the Detroit River, um, an environmental history of the Detroit River. So you'd have to wait for the book and buy it. And then we can do a podcast episode on it. Um, But um, yeah, so one reason for me to get involved with the podcast was just to sort of have a better sense of the region and the scholarship. Mm -hmm. Um, Because one of the things that I've sort of continue to read and and keep reading is this idea of a heartland. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was just interested in that. Um, I've been, as an environmental historian, uh, I've been interested in how people interact with the spaces that they are either born in, they choose, uh, or they create. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was sort of what I'm interested in, in sort of larger realms, I guess, of life. uh, and I have a background in South Asian environmental history. Uh, so it's always a, a contrast in my head in terms of, you know, what was what I have studied earlier and and now with the PhD and what's happening here. Um, yeah. How knowledge moves in spaces and over time and in time. Um, so, yeah, that's why I'm here. But mostly because I was tired of, like, Camden talking. <laughs> So I wanted everyone to get tired of me talking as well. So yeah, yeah, we need we need to be more democratic about uh, people getting sick of our voices. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I first encountered your work on the Detroit River. Um, I think before, I mean, we actually contact each other, and I'm, I'm sure mm-hmm. the con- connection came through Twitter. But we also did a panel in the summer of 2022 for the mm-hmm. Midwestern History Association, which really sort of, you know continued this conversation of thinking about environments, but also thinking about regionalism and the mm-hmm. intersection between the two. Uh, and I think, I think that theme, um, well, will be explored, you know, throughout this podcast, but also, mm-hmm. I mean, in this episode, I think there's a great mm-hmm. conversation. Um, this, this episode uh, of Heartland History, um, we had a great conversation with Dr. Kai Bosworth, who is a geographer mm-hmm. and an assistant professor of international studies in the School of World Studies at Virginia Commonwealth University. And he joined us to talk about his recent book, Pipeline Populism, Grassroots Environmentalism in the 21st Century, which was recently published from the University of Minnesota Press. 
Um, I thought it was a great conversation. Uh, and, and I think a lot of the questions you were bringing up, Ramya, are, you know, mm-hmm. about regionalism come up in this conversation. Yeah. And I think, you know, going back to sort of the the panel that, that you and I were on um, at the conference, one of the things that the undergirding theme for us was, you know, how certain projects get traction, but are eventually stymied, right? Mm-hmm. And what stood out to me about Kai's book was about, you know, was sort of looking at how projects get a response, right? Mm-hmm. Whether they are eventually stymied or not is secondary, but sort of what that means for the ways in which we understand the places that these projects are tried out, right? Because mm-hmm. the Midwest, like most regions, is, is rife with ideas that were tried and didn't go anywhere. Uh, but it's a great place to get a sense of like the pulse of the region, the pulse of the nation, mm-hmm. um, the pulse of North America, <laughs> the universe, whatever you want. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But but I like the sort of, you know, um, the, the, the focus of the book to try and sort of get a sense of what it means to to understand this backlash um, mm-hmm. against pipelines and, you know, the ways in which we think of involvement, like how do we frame it in a way that extends our knowledge about, or at least our, an analysis of mm-hmm. why people get riled up about something or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. And how that begins to fall apart. I, I think that what really struck me about this conversation there's really two pieces. One, you you asked a, you ask a great conversation, or you ask a great question about, um, you know, what is the Midwest, which I think is just mm-hmm. like you know, a conversation that needs to be had more often as people sort of use this term freely. You know, I do think it helps to continue to define that term as each pe- as each scholar sort of utilizes it, um, but also. You know, it's interesting to have a geographer who's interested in a very recent event talk about things uh, that he would like to see from historians. And I think there's an interesting conversation in that that provides maybe a launching pad for a lot of people who are interested um, in sort of what how how historians are perceived outside of the discipline and, and, and places where the, the field could continue to grow. For sure. And um, you and I need jobs, right? So we have more. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we need to, you know, keep pushing, keep writing, and we might as well have new things to write about. Exactly. Uh, um, some new uh, aspects of this podcast. As you can see, we have new co-host, a new format style. Uh, but I also want to point out we have some new music. Uh, uh a local artist from West Michigan. His name is Steve Leaf. He has agreed to lend us uh, some music to serve as the new intro music for the podcast. So please enjoy that and please give his stuff a listen and maybe purchase some vinyl or two. Yeah. And I'd like to, you know, I guess we both would like to give special thanks to the Midwestern History Association to help produce the podcast. Thank you for having me. Great. Shall we get into it? Yes. Kai, thank you, and, and welcome to Heartland History. We're so excited to have you here today. Thanks so much for inviting me. Um, well, you know, maybe before we jump into sort of the contents uh, of, of this wonderful book, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the background to the work. What led you to examine anti-pipeline grassroots politics? Um, maybe give us a little bit of that, you know, intellectual path to what led us to this project. Sure, Totally. Yeah, there's really 
two origin stories to how I came to write this book. Uh, on the one hand, I, when I was a young person, I guess I'm still relatively young, but when I was younger, uh, I was involved in what we called uh, at the time, the youth climate movement. Um, so as a college student, uh, I organized with other other young people to try to pressure um, politicians to do something about climate change. This was around 2006, 2007 onward. Um, and uh, I learned a lot from organizing or trying to organize in that space now 15 or more years ago to get some kind of climate change legislation passed. Um, and what we were doing at that time was not working. And so uh, I eventually kind of stopped organizing explicitly in that space and really tried to take a step back and think about what it was that wasn't working about what we were trying to do, our political assumptions, our understanding of the, the train, um, and uh, in fact, also just thinking about is getting climate change legislation passed like the way that we could best build power. Um, and the other, you know, really origin story uh, is the fact that I'm from Western South Dakota. Um, and so, you know, I was living in Minneapolis at the time, but kept hearing about uh, these sort of pipelines, tar sands pipelines uh, that were being planned and sort of emerging movements against them in a place that I did not expect. Um, so I was well positioned to kind of like go back to this landscape and this region and really think about, okay, um, what's going on here? How are climate and environmental organizations um, interfacing with people in South Dakota of all places? Um, and how are some of these uh, coalitions working or not working? Uh, what are their sort of political effects? Perhaps you could give our listeners a bit of background uh, to the main pipeline projects outlined in your book. Um, it might help set up the conversation if we have a timeline uh, and a geographic sense of the two pipeline projects, the Keystone XL and the Dakota Access. Yeah, definitely. So uh, the Keystone pipeline system um, is a series of partially completed um, and defeated uh pipeline segments that were designed to bring tar sands oil from Alberta to refineries in Illinois and the Gulf Coast, uh, way down in Texas and, and Louisiana. And uh, the first portion of the Keystone pipeline was proposed way back in 2007, 2008, Keystone 1, and it was completed um, through eastern uh, South Dakota, uh, eastern Dakotas and Nebraska. And Following that, uh, an XL portion was proposed. As you can imagine, the XL designation meant that the pipeline was bigger uh, and also a longer system. Um, it went through western, the western part of the Dakotas, uh, in part because it was designed to also interconnect to the Bakken system uh, in, in North Dakota, which is fracked oil rather than tar sand oil. Um, Parts of the Keystone XL pipeline were actually completed in 2014 after the Obama administration uh, decided to uh, understand the project as having several different components rather than one permit for the entire system. But the international border, which um, the international crossing from Alberta to, uh, to Nebraska was never 
completed. Um, it was the permit was eventually overturned in 2016, uh, despite the fact that the Trump administration, uh, President Trump, made it uh, his very first act is as president approving the Keystone XL pipeline. Um, it was never built during his term, and uh, the plug was finally pulled by TransCanada uh, or TC Energy, as they're they're now known um, in 2020 or 2021. Um, so around the same time. Uh, in, and in part because Keystone XL could not was not being built, the Dakota Access Pipeline, or DAPL, uh, was proposed to bring oil from the Bakken region in North Dakota to Illinois, so through uh, the Dakotas, Iowa, and Illinois. And um, unlike Keystone XL, because DAPL did not cross an international border, it was not subject to the same federal environmental review process. It was sort of shuttled through really, really quickly um, up until the blockade at the Standing Rock uh, Reservation, um, which which at that time, the part of the reservation uh, that the blockade was at uh, or near uh, was in North Dakota, um, really slowed things down uh, at the end of 2016. So my book and my research really um, is from this period uh, around 2010. Uh, I started fieldwork in 2012, um, and kind of it bookends with uh, the blockade at, at Standing Rock. Really trying to think about the the period prior to that particular political event. Yeah, when I, you know, as I was reading this book and and thinking about um, the reactions to these pipelines and 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 the way that the groups that you examine are sort of coming together, uh, which are, you know, it, it's a very diverse coalition of, you know, anti-pipeline politics. Um, and there's this really interesting interplay between, you know, like populist politics and like maybe what we might call traditional environmentalism, but also as you point out, sort of like indigenous voices as well. I'm, I'm curious, you know, I imagine a lot of these individuals in this group would not call themselves environmentalists. Um, but, you know, perhaps we could talk about a few of the, the stakeholders or the people who are coming together. Um, you know, wh wh what is causing the who are these people? And, and also, like, what is the motivation for banding together against, you know, anti-pipeline politics? Yeah, totally. So um, listeners might know that uh, there has been robust pipeline opposition movements uh, across North America that have emerged in the last decade or so. And if we want to think about um, pipeline opposition in the biggest sense, uh, there are all different sorts of individuals, groups, um, and political orientations that come to oppose uh, these oil pipelines for myriad reasons. So we can think about traditional sort of environmental groups who have used lobbying and litigation tactics to try to uh, prevent pipelines from being built uh, for their impacts on water and landscape, uh, public lands, and that kind of thing, um, all the way to the more kind of radical um, direct action groups, uh, anarchists, um, and uh, of course, Native nations who are opposing pipelines for their colonial, um, what they see as their, their colonial impact on the landscape and uh, in defense of indigenous sovereignty and land rights. And the argument of my book is that we ought to consider on and in this, this sort of political terrain of pipeline 
opposition a portion of the movement to be uh, characterized by populism, um, by a kind of environmental populism. And so by that, I, I simply mean that, um, you know, a populism is a kind of movement uh, or rhetorical style, I call it a genre, uh, that takes the people as the primary or proper authors of political struggle. Um, but the people have been in some way um, shut out from the democratic process by a group of elites, uh, corrupt politicians, corporations, um, sometimes understood to be, you know, foreign outsiders. Uh, and so populist politics tries to reclaim democracy um, or the public sphere in some kind of way uh, through mobilizing a, a kind of broad coalition uh of folks who identify as the people. So it's, it's sort of tautolog tautological in some kind of ways, but um, so the populist portion of pipeline opposition movements, I sort of understand to be uh, mostly uh, non-Indigenous people um, who were motivated to oppose the pipeline because of its impacts on uh, private property, on um, on grassroots, a grassroots sort of understanding of democracy, of uh, its impacts on their farming and ranch land, um, and generally speaking, the kind of you know skepticism of an outside, uh, in in the case of Trans Canada, foreign corporation kind of coming into um, small town and rural life, pitching um, kind of a, a project that sounds a little bit too good to be true. Um, you know, we, we have this sort of skepticism of, of a snake oil salesman or something like that, right? Um, and so, as you said, it's a lot more likely that, that this group of people would identify as populists than environmentalists. And, and they did. Many of them called themselves populists, which for my political science friends is baffling because they... <laughs> Uh, for political scientists, they're like, populism is this pejorative term that's bandied about in academic literature. Um, but in the upper Midwest, people, people have a kind of sense of um, a memory of the People's Party, which emerged in the 1890s um, in this region and was very strong in places like South Dakota, even electing a governor. Um, taking over uh, the Democratic Party um, and the like. And so, you know, they're, they're considering that this, this project is emblematic of a larger sort of um, deficit of, of democracy or control over their life in some kind of way, diagnosing it in that way. Mm -hmm. um, I still think that it's okay, you, you know, so to call it environmentalist in some kind of way, um, positions it within a certain kind of history and tradition that I want to suggest is still at least partially motivated with concern over uh, relationships with land, water, um, agriculture, and the like, uh, even though that's not the only thing that, um, that folks might be interested in. Um, I, I'm thinking back to one uh, landowner and pipeline opponent I talked to um, who, when I asked, when asked about, uh, about 
environmental organizations, he said, well, I'm no bunny hugger. That's not, that's not who I am, you know? Um, uh, but I'll, I'll listen, I'll, I'll work with, with some of those organizations if, if we're heading the same direction, um, or something like that. Mm -hmm. So, so it's sort of my argument that, um, and, and my perspective also that, um, other sorts of environmental organizations and climate justice organizations within North America looked at the pipeline struggle as one that was about climate change in the environment and tried to learn lessons from the sorts of coalitions, uh, populist coalitions that were being built in the region, um, coalitions that were that were and are um, tenuous and um, difficult and maybe uh, not always as romantic or easily constructed as uh, some of the, the sort of shorthand stories might have you believe. Um, the thing that struck me when you were talking was how much of, obviously, how much of these organizations and sort of the active organization is dependent on alliances, which seem tenuous, right? Um, indigenous groups making arguments for sovereignty, finding themselves aligned with conservative farmers and landholders who in turn are arguing arguing against eminent domain and you know see themselves as the victims of the federal government so and you also have environmental groups as you pointed out who have their own political motivations um so how do these groups um navigate each other's politics right what sorts of opportunities and issues arise from these divergent groups? Yeah, so I think that one way of thinking about this question is putting it into uh, certain kinds of political space, you know, so where do these sorts of negotiations happen? Um, you know, so populist uh, uh, political organizing or coalitional political organizing in general in South Dakota um, is, and some of the other places that I talk about, Iowa, Nebraska, North Dakota as well, um, is maybe new for a lot of people and, uh, requires, um, you know, kind of some opening events or places that, um, might otherwise uh, seem banal to us. So, uh, you know, thinking of things like, um, uh, not so much protests, but, uh, you know, events like a, a Buffalo cookout that I went to in a town called, uh, or near township called Ideal South Dakota, uh, that brought together um, representatives from uh, the Ocheti Shikona Yate, uh, the nearby Rosebud Reservation, along with farmers and ranchers from both South Dakota and Nebraska. Um, and at this event, um, a lot of what happens is you know, there might be an organized uh, kind of series of speakers who are all talking about, you know, we're, we're opposed to the pipeline this for this reason, this reason, so on and so forth. And, um, and individuals sort of come to understand each other's motivations as perhaps aligned um, or perhaps at least useful for the time being um, through a kind of like, through that meeting space, through that, that that sort of ability to kind of come together and understand each other. Um, 
you know, for many of the farmers and ranchers I talked to, they were like, we never talked to our, our Native American neighbors before. Um, so this is different for them in a lot of ways. And for other farmers and ranchers, they weren't really interested in these coalitions. They were, um, many of them were only really interested in uh, the sort of property rights um, side of things. And so I guess what I, what I'm trying to describe in the, what I'm trying to describe in the book is simply the, the kinds of ways that, uh, that assumptions that are made or the stories that are told about these coalitions can sometimes miss that sort of organizing work and the, the kind of work of, of translation and coming to see um, yourselves in, in solidarity with others. Um, getting involved in organizing, in political organizing, changes people, though. And so, you know, it is a story of some, some landowners coming to describe themselves or understand them, their dispossession of their land as somehow similar to the federal government's dispossession of indigenous nations, which I, I spend an entire chapter sort of um, taking apart this argument and trying to understand how did it come to happen that, that these settler landowners would think of private property defense as the same as or similar to indigenous land defense. Um, but that's not the, the only kind of trajectory or actually it's not even an easy one to construct for other landowners. Um, you know, they did begun begin to see the sort of colonial process as one that their ancestors, you know, participated in and that they inherit responsibilities for land restitution or for um, even, you know, different sorts of acts of solidarity. So, um, you know, some of the settler landowners eventually would show up at the Dapple blockade at Standing Rock. And um, it's just sort of, you know, you have to take a step back and be like, how, how wild is it for someone who might never have been involved in political organizing to be at a blockade, you know, mm-hmm. um, and in, in solidarity with a, a sort of decolonial movement? Um, so much interpretive work and relationship building goes into that. Um, that's not simply about, um, you know, using land uh, and land protection as the lowest common denominator um, or using the people as an open identity. So, you know, I kind of eventually in the book sort of come to this understanding of populism as as a sort of transitional politics. It's a way of getting people who might not see the landscape as as political or might not ever have been involved in political organizing, um, but have a sense that things aren't aren't great right now, um, and that uh, you know the state or corporations or capital are in some way uh, not managing things well or to their benefit um, and politicizing them. Um, But like where you go from there is an open-ended question. Uh, People can get funneled into uh, all different sorts of places from um, democratic party politics to just kind of like re-depoliticization in which they... um, simply fight for the status quo and the, the return of their property rights um, or more sort of sympathetic in my, in my mind directions towards a kind of like indigenous uh, uh, sort of uh, solidarity struggle. Which sort of thinking about um, these 
alliances and, and the opportunities that arise from them. I'm curious to to know more about what kinds of tactics um, these anti-pipeline protesters employ that demonstrate this, you know, grassroots populism, even if it's a transitional sort of movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as a geographer, I am really interested in the spaces in which populism emerges um, and, and we can see it sort of bubble up populist rhetoric and performance and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, I, I talked about cookouts. I went to a, this a Neil Young and Willie Nelson concert, um, a, a lot of these kinds of public meetings, whether they were organizing meetings or uh, these kinds of spaces of testimony within um, in the environmental and legal review process. So, uh, federal environmental impact statements require uh, some sort of public participation, um, mm-hmm. at least for the time being. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't. That's something that's under <laughs> under uh, attack. Uh, the the very very uh, menial sort of performances of of democracy uh, that exist in these places um, that become organizing spaces as well. So. Um, as well as public uh, utilities commissions or state level environmental review processes. These vary from state to state, but oftentimes have a public component uh, to some degree or another. Um, And so these spaces uh, and the crowds that they gather, the people that they gather become populist in, um, in, or become sites where populism emerges um, in part because uh, people are, coming to understand themselves as the people, as a collective, as a collective identity. Um, so, you know, refrains sort of emerge in, in protests or in public testimony about um, diagnosing what exactly it is that the problem with these pipelines is and how exactly these, these sorts of spaces fail as democratic um, opportunities or, or performances, you know. Um, so... Uh, whether it's, whether it's, you know, these sort of more oppositional um, protests, marches, uh, kind of like civil disobedience, not quite the same as blockades or direct action, but um, taking symbolic arrest uh, or more kind of meeting spaces like uh, institutionalized public participation processes. Um, Populism emerges in space, in collective spaces, um, and you know less through the kinds of media or internet technologies that sometimes um, again contemporary scholarship sort of assumes. Um, it's really about about performing a identity of the people and bringing it into being rather than assuming that it exists um, a priori. Um, and I think that I'll say one thing, one other thing about tactics. Um, populism as a social form um, espouses a kind of desire to be popular, a desire to form the people mm-hmm. as a, as a identity category, um, you know? And so um, it is also organized tactically around trying to become popular to the most, to the greatest number of people. Um, and so this has some effects on the movement, uh, the people that I studied. Um, it also 
constraining them from taking what they perceive to be more radical or more um, unpopular stances. So, um, you know, there are there were certain times in the portion of for some of the groups that I studied or people that I, I followed and interviewed that they didn't want to risk to partake in actions that they thought risked the coalition and risked upsetting others in the coalition. And so, or risked upsetting others that they imagined um, might become part of the coalition. And consequently, that meant that the tactics that they sometimes chose were ones that I describe as kind of like a lowest, lowest common denominator sort of politics. You know, anyone can participate in the march um, but the march has to be understood to be quote unquote family friendly. Um, it's not going to be a space of um, radicalism. It's going to be a space of kind of just generic mm-hmm. um, uh, protest against the pipeline. Um, and so uh, that becomes a, another big story that I, I try to try to talk about. Yeah, there's so many interesting sort of like um, yeah, tentacles of research here. I, 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 that chapter you're talking about, especially about those public hearings of sort of like, there's this notion that, um, sorry, this is on the side, like no, this notion totally. that um, like everyone going into that room knows it doesn't matter in a way, mm-hmm. right? And, uh, but like still going, it is actually a different form of action in protest. And I, I love the way that you explore what it means for people to show up to an event and, and, you know, protest, even though they know that, you know, this is a formality, this probably won't lead to anything. And I think it just leads to really interesting ways to think about, you know, me sort of thinking about cultural history. I mean, like, that's a really fascinating way to understand how people are constructing meaning in these sort of interesting political venues. Um, And I just found myself sort of like, very much interested in these stories that you're getting of people like expressing, like, I don't think this does anything, but like, I need to show up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Just to, just to sort of, Oh, sorry. Did you want to ask? No, no, no. Yeah. Just to, (laughs) just to sort of uh, elaborate on that. So, you know, when I'm talking about these public participation meetings, they are kind of like performances of exhaustion. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of these, these farmers and ranchers, landowners, um, activists, Native Nations, environmentalists. It's a little bit different for Native Nations because they have actual, or they're supposed to have consultation rights, which is a different form of participation. But, um, you know, at a certain point, they were like, we've done this like Mm. 20 times, you know, why like, and no one listens to us. And we don't think that people are going to listen to us. So why, you know, what's the point of going to a, 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 fake democratic event. Mm -hmm. And the answer that I sort of come to eventually is that, well, so there's a strategic kind of answer, which is just, we're going to try and see if it works, even though we don't think it will, we're going to try just for, for whatnot. Um, But on the other hand, you know, I'm, I'm sort of interested in the role that the experience of, deficient democracy plays in pushing people towards Mm -hmm. other possibilities. Mm -hmm. So they see that this doesn't work. And that means that they then want to, or find themselves being pushed to do other kinds of actions. 
So you go to testify at the public hearing against the pipeline. Um, and it looks, it's a clown show. It's a rodeo. It's a, a horse and pony, you know, all, all of the mm-hmm. great Midwestern colloquialisms <laughs> come out in, in these descriptions. Um, and then afterwards, you know, some people are like, hey, do you want to come to this like protest march? And you're like, I've never been to a protest march before. And all of a sudden, like the meaning of your testimony within the um, public hearing uh, uh, has cemented in your mind a commitment to other sorts of political activity towards meeting other people and, and whatnot. So there, there's a lot of possibility mm-hmm. within the kind of ways that these spaces gather. And since we're you know talking about the Midwest, it's interesting also to think about how a public meeting in, say, Pierre, South Dakota, brings people from all over South Dakota who might otherwise not be in contact with each other um, because they're from places that have, a, you know, that are far apart um, or have like a population density of like two people per square mile or something like that. Mm -hmm. So, um, so there's real opportunity, but the opportunity is less within the public participation meeting itself Mm -hmm. and more around its edges in the conversations and, um, and organizing that happens uh, around and beyond the the sort of performance of, of institutional democracy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- you know, we've, we've now brought up sort of like the idea of the Midwest and the heartland. And then mm-hmm. one of your chapter uh, about, you know, as you t- call it, the heartland melodrama, uh, which I, I just found like really interesting because it's like, what is the idea of the Midwest as people are constructing mm-hmm. it? And I'm, I'm struck by the ways in which the Midwest and the heartland or the, you know, the idea of these places are channeled as a political tool. You, you, you open with a story in that chapter of, of Tom Steyer, who is, as far as I can tell, demonstrably not a Midwesterner, right? Uh, <laughs> you know, and uh, a next gen climate uh, in his organization, next gen climate, which he's, you know, he's coming out as anti-pipeline uh, politics, um, but he's running ads playing with this notion of sort of like a heartland drama uh, discussing how economic decline in the region uh, is connecting to the history of this pipeline and, and also this fear of the outsider, the fear of outside money and outside competition. You go on to write in that chapter, uh, and this is from your book, the heartland figures as a popular and especially virtuous hero for the dramas of the nation. The heartland elevates the world historical importance of the wounded U.S., Great Plains region while centralizing the role of territorial defense in a global political economy. It thus contrasts with foreign interests, but in doing so, it shores up not only the nation, but also a specific and special region of it. And I think that's, you know, you're playing with sort of how people are constructing the meaning of this sort of heartland, right? It's a common trope in American discourse uh, that the Midwest or the heartland is sort of emblematic of the nation in some ways. Um, as an aside, for some reason, I was reading Frederick Jackson Turner last night, and I just mm-hmm. was like, this is very, <laughs> I don't know why it was, but I, I was just sort of interested in, he's, you know, gets the ball rolling on that. Um, but I'm curious how this worked out on the ground and how activists sort of responded to this rhetoric of sort of the drama, the melodrama. Um, it seems to be, you know, very obvious political limits of this tool in mobilizing uh, uh, populations, which is to say, like, clearly a romantic notion of the past a connection to settler colonialism for sure. Uh, but it also like feeds on xenophobia a little bit as well. Right. Um, and so like, yeah, what do you do with that melodrama? How does it work on the ground? Yeah. So a little bit of background because in that chapter, I'm really describing both the, the way that we can see this discourse in 
of heartland melodrama in the sort of ads and media as mm-hmm. well as in written public comments um, that were submitted to the federal government the environmental impact statement on keystone xl in particular and you know all of this was shaped by the fact that uh, what the state department said that it would be making its permitting decision on was whether the pipeline was in the national interest mm. and so in addition to these written public comments, you know, um, I did hear a lot of the, the similar sort of stories of um, economic decline in the upper Midwest being sort of diagnosed as in some way due to what international studies scholars might call globalization, but um, generally speaking, uh, some sort of geopolitical and economic competition from uh, other parts of the world. And um, because the because the Keystone XL pipeline was uh, a representative of foreign oil, Canadian oil, um, and because it was going to coasts where um, it enters a global marketplace, uh, people then, uh, many people also diagnosed it as um, in some way being not for Americans, but for um, foreigners. And in this case, like really specifically picking up on a kind of like anti-Chinese um, sort of sentiment. Um, and there are compelling reasons to understand why it is that China gets uh, picked out, of course, not simply as the, the kind of um, potential inheritor of the role of like a global economic um, leader, mm-hmm. um, but also for its understanding as kind of like a um, th- th- a place of racialized others who are um, doing things supposedly the wrong way, doing capitalist economics in a way that's um, hyper efficient and consequently uh, leaves those who have a kind of mythic understanding of the American producer or yeoman farmer as not just um, not just a little capitalist, but also one who is a representative of community, of democracy and the like um, in the dust. Um, and so on the ground, um, how do people respond to this rhetoric? I mean, I think it's, um, you know, it's a it was a sort of assumption sometimes um, that uh, that one could make these arguments um, and um, and they that others would agree with you um, and it became sort of popular um, but it also isn't effective or wasn't mm-hmm. effective in a lot of the um, sorts of spaces that people were actually organizing in um, because it wasn't it was seen as true but far away you know so um, so folks might agree that like uh, f- you know globalization or foreign competition or whatever um, was affecting their grain prices or or um, you know has roots that tie back to the farm debt crisis in the 1980s or, or whatever else um, but the venues at hand were making decisions seemingly in places like South Dakota on things like uh, much more technical terms, things like, um, you know, uh, soil science, and pipeline leaks and, you know, risks of um, 
of uh, rupture and all these sorts of more more technical localized concerns. Um, and I think that like the other response then from outside of the, the sort of populist fear of a kind of foreign corrupting um, uh, force uh, was really just a, a completely different or inverted um, relationship that that the indigenous leaders um, in the Achete Shikono Yate and organizing elsewhere kind of put on the table, which is one of international solidarity or indigenous internationalism. Um, and, you know, we saw this at DAPL um, with the kinds of interesting diplomacy and, um, and relationships of understanding not just of the Chedishikoin Oyate or other native nations in this region, but all over the Americas, people came and told their stories and um, shared their, their music and language and um, built solidarity on the ground that way. And not only, not only with indigenous nations, but also with then, um, you know, uh, Palestinians and representatives of Black Lives Matter movements and, um, so, and Sami people, all, you know, all sorts of, um, different groups were there and it, it, it was hard work to do that diplomacy. And it's, mm-hmm. it's described well by, um, many of the indigenous scholars, uh, who have written on this, um, particularly Nick Estes. Um, and, uh, that, that sort of solidarity was premised on a kind of alternative vision of, um, of transnational solidarity against, U.S. empire rather than a kind of mm-hmm. defense of the national project of um, the United States, which um, absolves us of responsibility, absolves Americans and, and the federal government of responsibility for both settler colonialism and global imperialism um, that in some ways are directly tied to things like climate change and mm-hmm. um, and um, the, the sorts of crises it's, it's producing around the world. Um, so I see this chapter as kind of like a failed, um, mm-hmm. I see the Heartland melodrama as a kind of failed critique of capital accumulation. Um, it's, it's gesturing towards some of the, the real effects of the economy on the region, on agriculture and land values and um, the forms of, of labor that exist or no longer exist um, in the Midwest um, and the supposed importance that the Midwest has for the nation and importance that seems to be fading in some kind of ways, but still in, a, in our imaginary is, mm-hmm. is very mm-hmm. strong. Um, and yet um, it fails in, it fails to correctly diagnose or it fails to build a, a diagnosis that, um, that understands both the historic responsibility of, of people and institutions in this region, as well as the global situation um, in which we find ourselves. Mm-hmm. So um, there are a lot of other sorts of kinds of international solidarity that are possible. And I, you know, I find myself in an international studies department describing um, these and under- trying to understand them with my students frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in this situation, it wasn't always uh, the case that they um, clearly emerged uh, within, within the sort of populist political genre. So when you were speaking, it, it struck me um, that we've been sort of talking about this for a bit, about the particular space that the Midwest offers, right? Like, is 
I wonder if the Midwest is perhaps the most amenable um, place um, to the framework of affective infrastructures, um, given all this history from good old Frederick Jackson Turner to, mm-hmm. you know, the populists to, to now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'd be interested to, to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I, I'm not certain that the Midwest is the, the, the most um, or the exemplary sort of situation for describing uh, um, affective infrastructure, a concept I use in the book to, to sort of understand the, the sense of, of belonging um, and the, the variety of emotions that lead people to become involved in, in populist political organizing and to interpret their emotions as as leading in some way to their political action. Um, but I do think that like, you know, there is a way that the Midwest is um, well situated for these kinds of melodramatic stories um, in our imaginations. And it's not just about, um, about on the ground politics, but also, you know, the, the forms of, of media and culture that have shaped uh, you know, how we think about what Midwestern values are or something like that. Right. Mm-hmm. And so in the, in the chapter and book, I sort of briefly mentioned, um, you know, we can see this in, in the cinema of the seventies and eighties in particular, um, you know, kind of like whether it's, it's, you know, more arty stuff like uh, uh, Terrence Malick or a kind of like more pulpier version um uh, like a field of dreams, you know, um, in which uh, a kind of nostalgia for a past that never actually existed, um, but mm-hmm. certainly is felt to be in decline or no longer exists, um, is a, a kind of real, uh, real felt cultural construct that shapes how people in the, how some people in the Midwest, how settlers in particular in the Midwest think of themselves and their relationship to um, land, agriculture, small town, democracy, um, so on and so forth. Um, But, you know, on the other hand, the Midwest is, has always been, or parts of the Midwest that I study have always been globally situated. And we, we have to like really recognize that. I'm, I'm thinking in particular, I was just so fascinated to learn about the history of, um, of the late 70s and 1980 and early 1980s, in which um, the South Dakota Peace and Justice Center, along with um, uh, you know Native again Native activists, as well as um, folks who were part of the anti-nuclear industry, all kind of like came together again with farmers, ranchers, landowners to oppose um, the Minutemen missiles, missile silos across. Um, the Dakotas and, and Montana that were nuclear warheads dotting the the heartland landscape mm-hmm. um, pointed at, at Russia, of course, or the Soviet Union at the time, um, uh, you know, over the over the North Pole. And so um, it's really interesting to also dig into and think about how the the story, the sort of perhaps the dominant story told about the heartland or the Midwest um, is also um, there's all these other sorts of background, uh, other ways in which we can think about the the kinds of commitments to place that emerge in this region are also 
also can be quickly or differently um, uh, radicalized or, or shape a, 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 an alternative set of emotions mm-hmm. and commitments than the ones that we might usually mm-hmm. expect. I guess the, the 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 thing that strikes me though as as somebody who's uh, I guess trying to be a Midwesterner um, <laughs> is <laughs> um, I mean I've only been here eight years. Um, I'm just sort of like wondering also, you know, you sort of talked about how the Midwest is is an exemplar of the, the melodrama, right? Like of because of its particular history and geography. Um, but I guess the thing for me um, was what is the Midwest? I often find myself um, wondering what that means because depending on who you ask, mm-hmm. uh, it means very different places. Um, so... Yeah, what is the Midwest? Yeah, it's it's a it's a tough question um, because there isn't actually a thing that is the Midwest. Um, what the Midwest is is a sort of fuzzy agreement to treat a portion of um, of the United States as if it had a kind of common basis in whether that's a, a, a cultural one, political one. Um, social, racial, or otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, but that common basis doesn't actually exist. It's a, it's a myth that we tell ourselves about the region um, in order to, uh, and, and, you know, for a variety of reasons, but um, that does work to sort of bind us together in, in some kind of way. Um, and so, you know, there's very little that a person from... Cleveland, Ohio, actually has in common with, you know, Mm -hmm. my parents in Spearfish, South Dakota, 10 miles from the border with Wyoming. And it's not like when we crossed that Wyoming border, I spent a lot of time in Wyoming growing up, Mm -hmm. that all of a sudden I was um, stepping into an entirely different region or something like that. Mm -hmm. So nonetheless, there are ways in which regional um, political economy in particular um, shapes how how people come to think of themselves and where they live. And I think that for me, I was a lot of the story that I tell in this book is about uh, the upper Midwest, really. Um, you know, the, the upper Great Plains, which um, has a, a particular landscape, um, weather, um, as population, of uh, settler immigrants, Native nations, and um, and the like that I think, um, and, a, and a particular political history, um, you know, of populism and other sorts of, as well as a, a kind of like conservative, like um, conservative mm-hmm. and, and libertarian tendencies, um, that I do think, you know, um, overlaps with other sorts of regional identities that in, in ways that, um, that stick together. So, you know, um, I, I guess I would posit that, uh, that sort of upper Midwest regionalism as, um, something that is particularly interesting and sticky to me rather than the kind of like big Midwest, um, Mm -hmm. the, the state border Midwest, um, which I think combines, uh, several different things, um, including like Rust Belt, urban mm-hmm. um, manufacturing hubs, uh, extractive industries, 
um, and the agricultural hinterlands that um, that are tied together with you know a variety of political and economic forces, banks, credit lines of credit, and the like. So, um, so I'm I'm most interested in in the way that um, the Midwest as a heuristic um, or the heartland as a as a heuristic uh, similarly um, can tell us stories about. Um, or help us as a lens for telling stories about those sorts of um, conflicts and commonalities that mm. that emerge in this part of the world. Yeah, and it just has me thinking too. It's I, I love that question, Rami, and I, I think it's like you know, Kai, great job trying to answer. You know, like this is only like the basis of the Midwest History Conference every year. But no, um, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a great question because it is just like. It's really interesting. And I think what is interesting about your answer there is thinking about the ways in which the concept, the idea of the Midwest also provides opportunities to shape new meanings and shoot new mm-hmm. relationships as well. Right. Like it's it's a, it's yes, it's an it's a place. It's a cultural space that is fungible to historical moments and times and economies and all those sort of things, which is, I think, very clear in your work. I think like one thing I really enjoy reading about your work is you're always um interested in sort of like, here are these things that are happening on the ground and here are the potential possibilities of where that could go, how it fails. I mean, which is very populist politics, right? I mean, it's sort of like how that works. I just think that's an interesting answer and sort of telling of sort of where your head's at <laughs> as you're thinking about uh, space and place and politics. Um, I'm curious here, and I know we're keeping you here for a bit of time here. Um, you had talked about stories. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, the, the 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 book that you've written for us uh, here is, you know, it's really recent history. But I'm curious, you know, if there are historians, um, particularly listeners of this podcast, um, you know, what should historians or members of the Midwestern History Association be thinking about as they read this book? Or, or you know, what are some takeaways for them uh, to think about, you know, the Midwest, the upper Midwest, environment, mm-hmm. history, regionalism? Yeah, totally. So I can I can think of a few, and um, you know, hopefully these aren't cliched answers for historians. <laughs> so, uh, as a geographer, we're we're the space people, and you guys are the time people. So, um, I think that like the first one, you know, of which populism is is maybe an exemplar, is just uh, how um, how history uh, and, and historical narratives continue to shape how people think about themselves mm-hmm. and and how they came here. And so, you know, the story of populism isn't one only of historian, you know, what happened in the 1890s or something like that, but how our interpretation of the 1890s continues to shape, you know, the forms of identification that people might have today. Um, and of course, populism has just been such a um, debated topic in history, mm-hmm. um, you know, really kind of like cyclically, um, uh, every 20 or 30 years, it becomes an explosive sort of debate once again, um, reinterpretation of, of the populist moment um, in the 1890s. And, and sort of my book um, and my way of, of thinking about that is is to bring it into the present and say that like these these live debates about history are also occurring on the ground among people who are not historians who are not um, you know necessarily tied to this. So um, so that's one sort of part of it. Um, you know, two other big takeaways I want to put on the table are um, are about uh, one that I already referenced about the international um, and one about um, 
the grassroots political tradition, political traditions of the left in the region. Mm-hmm. Um, so first on the, on international, you know, I, I just really think that, um, that, and I, I expect that historians are, are doing a lot of this work already, but seeing, um, seeing the Midwest and, uh, as not simply victims of globalization or only recently integrated into a global economy, um, but always already shaped by many of these, these sorts of international forces. And I think, um, you know, a, a book by uh, Manu Karuka that really reshaped my, my mind on this um, posits uh, uh, the, the frontier interface between, you know, settler colonialism and indigenous nations as an international space already. And, um, and that really changed how I thought about, um, as, a, as a scholar in an international studies department, um, a place like South Dakota as, as caught in webs of international relations, whether they're, um, again, uh, transnational infrastructure systems or the ways that international banks finance these, um, all down to the sorts of quotidian diplomacy making mm-hmm. among Native nations and between uh, Indigenous people and settlers um, and uh, possibilities of coalition building or conflict. Um, so rethinking the international is, is particularly compelling to me um, across history rather than as something new. And then, you know, the, the other one is just that I think that, and, and this is one of my commitments in the book, um, that's um, to telling stories about um, the emergence of kinds of radical politics in um, places that are not discussed or thought of as the leading edge of political transformation, uh, revolutionary consciousness or something like that. Um, and I think that like, there's, there's a sense sometimes that the political conservatism um, in some of these uh Midwest states and Great Plains states is taken as a sort of timeless and unchanging and unchallenged um, existence, such that sometimes people write histories of populism, which just project back onto the populist movement. Oh, they were actually just conservative religious farmers who um, wanted to build a kind of like a, a community of moral standing in the region um, and had no no real radical ambitions or whatsoever um, and again like i was shocked and and also pleased to like really look back at, at some of these historical events and be like um you know there were populists in south dakota who um thought of themselves as socialists who um were committed to uh, a radical critique of uh the political system and economic order in which they were um, in which they were slotted into the Dakota Ruralist, a weekly paper in Eastern South Dakota, um, claimed to have the largest circulation of any socialist newspaper in the 1890s. I don't know if that's true, but that's what they claimed. And the fact that they claimed that out of Eastern South Dakota, um, like did something to my brain where I was like, I I gotta like rethink this. So whether it's, um, you know, going back to some of these, um, 
you know, the, the leadership of the American Indian movement and Wounded Knee Two in the 1970s, the struggle for the Black Hills, um, uh, Farm Aid, the anti-nuclear movement, uh, the, the sort of peace and justice movement that I, I referenced already. There's a, a rich tradition um, of, uh, a rich as well as tragic tradition mm-hmm. of uh, radical organizing in the region that I think um, uncovering is really important um, in part because, you know, for, for people, for young people in the region who are organizing now for social change, whether that's um, in defense of, um, of trans kids in school or for abortion access or for indigenous rights, um, it can feel like the landscape is, is hopeless or has no opportunity for mm. social transformation and, you know, recovering those histories is compelling to me because it gives us uh, a, it gives us an opportunity to see in um, in movements of the past, kind of like ancestors or forebearers for uh, interpreting the political landscape of the present, and thus create kinds of like responsibilities and affinities with others um, to build a kind of like more equal, more environmentally just uh, sort of future. Um, so that's kind of like my commitment to, to South Dakota and, and South Dakota political organizing is um, is one of uh, actually they're they're like really interesting things that are happening here um, in some ways more interesting than you might find in places that you'd expect like, you know, New York or San Francisco mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. wherever else. So I was wondering if you'd based on this commitment and, and what you outlined, um, in, in terms of what the Midwestern history, what historians of the Midwest could learn from your work. Um, I'm wondering if you'd like to share with us what you're working on next. Yeah, that's a uh, um, complicated question. So uh, <laughs> if I can, I can hopefully draw the connection though um, with the book. So um, in addition to, um, to trying to understand pipelines, I had also been involved in understanding uranium, the history and present of uranium mining in Western South Dakota. And all of this um, oftentimes was, you know, for opponents of these, uh, these energy projects, um, what was being defended were the aquifers, were underground <laughs> sources of water that Um, we had some sense were there and were important, but like don't interface with or uh, necessarily know or experience. And um, I talk about this a little in the book and other sorts of uh, things that happen when you, or need to happen if you want to put a 1,100 mile long oil pipeline, six feet underground um, across vastly different sorts of soil horizons and and um, permeable spaces, so on and so forth. So, I, you know, I became really interested in how environmental um, environmentalists or how social movements who are fighting for the protection of the underground might think about um, think about space and nature in different ways than conventional environmentalists. So, if if conventional environmentalism is among other things a, a story of kind of like elite a, a sort of elitist story about 
um, coming to understand nature through like, I don't know, hiking or backpacking or like seeing animals or, or kind of like feeling it in, in an experiential sort of way. Mm-hmm. Um, how does it happen that people become committed to, um, to uh, spaces that are not living, um, that are, you know, ima- must be imagined because they can't be experienced to mm-hmm. underground, mm-hmm. Um, a variety of kinds of like underground spaces. Um, so this is a multi-sided project that investigates uh, what I'm thinking of as like the environmentalist underground um, mm. in um, situations where um, aquifers or other sorts of underground relationships are seen as under threat, um, as well as uh, bringing me into contact with all different sorts of formations from caves and sinkholes and karst landscapes to urban pipeline natural gas pipeline delivery systems um, to fights over um, grave sites and and cemeteries where people are buried. Um, And uh, part of this is going to be, again, in the Midwest, I became interested in in the cave systems in the Black Hills, but also uh, Missouri and Southern Indiana. Um, And so I'll be continuing to really think about how uh, different forms of coalitional politics emerge to to protect um, or otherwise uh, conserve and maintain good relationships with uh, with our ge- geologic and soil and aquifer and other sorts of mm. uh, underground uh, processes. Sounds interesting. Yeah, it does. Yeah, and it's making me think that I should work on my silly monograph um, <laughs> uh, relate or have related uh, to the idea of nature and like what what gets their knickers in a knot um, yeah, and, <laughs> yeah totally. and it's 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 like a classic conversation that goes back to things like frederick jackson turner and how mm-hmm. our new frontiers imagined to be pure or untouched or in need of defense, what kinds of people populate mm-hmm. them, what are their identities, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff like uh, is is on the table once again. Great. Well, um, Kai, thank you so much for your time and, 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 you know, talking with us about your wonderful book. Thank you so much. This was, this was great. Yeah. Thank you guys for, for such um, wonderful questions and for the opportunity to really dig into to these topics.